You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Land and Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. Right here on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, coming to you from Starkville, Mississippi. Woo-woo! We are traveling fools. We are here in a hotel room at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, getting ready to work a property tomorrow morning, but today it's podcast time, and we have a very special topic for you guys. I'm excited about this one because I I, I feel like we always are saying, oh, we no one ever talks about this or no one's ever doing this, but... Literally, I don't think anyone has really spoken on this topic before, and it's one that I think is so incredibly in over. Yeah, world. <laughs> right, right. In a podcast, and, and honestly, in a hunting standpoint too, um, and how, and managing a property, but it's so it's in depth. So kind of be prepared. Um, but something that again, it's often really overlooked, but incredibly important to not just the hunting aspect, the habitat aspect, but really. Soil nutrients, soil fertility, Earth. air quality. Mother Earth. Yeah. So, man, it's this, this is going to be fun. And we have a lot to do, so we will try to cover it quick. <laughs> and it'll be like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Because uh, we have a ton of information, a ton of topics to cover. Um, as Matt said, this is something that's it's much bigger than killing a 200-inch deer. This is all goes back to preserving the landscape that we are so blessed to have and enjoy and so leaving uh, it a legacy yeah and leaving it better than we found it so a lot of the stuff that we implement we preach and we practice on our own places and in our clients properties goes back to what basically was natural and the way nature manages itself and we just try to fix the problems that have occurred through invasive species or whatever it is or lack of management or pulling natural management out of it such as prescribed fire that's all that we basically do and so this week's podcast is all about diversity and monocultures and you're like a what Uh, a mono who and that's a monoculture and just to break it down that means a single species monoculture and they can be found in so many different um, aspects of the environment and to provide examples of what monocultures are across kind of the landscape that you commonly see and you just drive past you're like oh yeah that's that's a pine plantation that's a monoculture so in a food plot situation 
you know, a monoculture, what we what we would see is just straight clover, or just straight soybeans, just corn, or in the fall, just turnips. That is a monoculture. That is a single species that's been planted, and that's all that's growing in that food plot within the boundary of that food plot. In a timber situation, we can see things like. The pine plantation that is so prevalent. Um, and it's kind of ironic. We're doing a podcast monocultures in Mississippi today and talk about pine plantations. But um, another one that you see kind of in, in timber is orchards. You know, you have land just devoted to orchards, just those acreage acreages, and that's that is the crop. Um, and grasses. Well, you c- we will talk about that too because. Later on in the notes, we have orchards and the importance of diversity in orchards right. with some species. So, in a grass situation, you could find that in a fescue field. So, many pastures are just straight fescue. Um, or you can have just Bermuda grass. Um, even just straight switchgrass is often planted. Um, so, those are all monocultures of grasses. In an agricultural setting, that can be seen as soybean fields cornfields, wheat fields, and cotton fields. And a lot of these things are so prevalent across the landscape, and they're so common. So that's why this topic is not controversial. However, it's let's just educate ourselves on what a monoculture is and what are the pros and cons and what are the long-term effects of having just single species planted in one specific area. And I don't want people to get bored right away, but this is all going to get tied back into hunting and what it is and how this affects your wildlife species and how to make a property that much better by avoiding monocultures. So, again, we're throwing a lot of information out there this week, but be sure to hang in there, hold on, because we're going to make it all make sense and understand why we try to avoid monocultures. Now, and go ahead. Keep in mind, when it comes to... Um, monocultures, a lot of times the ones that we see in the landscape are because of an introduction of a non-native plant um, species. For example, fescue, not native. We see that a lot. Bermuda grass, not native. We see that a lot across the landscape. Um, Johnson grass, you see a lot of Johnson grass monocultures in fields. Um, there's so many, and, and a lot of times it's just because of the introduction of a species that's not native. So there's no known predators to that species. You think of some animals that have been introduced that aren't um, native to that area, and they end up out competing the native species because the native species has a predator, and now that has huge competition, and it can't keep up. So the non-native ends up taking over. So a lot of this stuff that we're talking about when we refer to monocultures are either non-natives or really aggressive species so like switchgrass switchgrass is is native but it can outcompete a lot of the other native grasses out there so you have to be careful on planting it too thick when you're when you're planting native grasses so i guess the question then becomes why why do we have monocultures why are they even present right now and do they naturally occur so a lot of the things a lot of the pros why they got started and why they're implemented so commonly across our landscape is because they're simple to plant look at a farmer he's got a field and he wants to make it simple well let me plant one thing keep the same spacing plant the entire field the same way it's simple and when he maintains it it's going to be the same thing he can do it evenly throughout the entire property through the entire field and then again in harvest too he can plant he can plant it the same day 
Yeah. He can spray the same herbicide. The same day. And he can harvest it the same day with the same piece of equipment. So when that, that equates to profitability of his time in the field and the overall production of that crop, he can be more profitable if he sticks to one species and maintains it the same way and harvests it the same way. He's not spending time switching um Heads on the combine. Heads, heads on the combine, right. Planting that. Or getting a whole different, different piece of equipment to harvest the next species. Exactly. So, or or going, having to go out there and pick it by hand. Yeah. Yeah. So he is more profitable, or she is more profitable, when planting a monoculture in an agricultural setting. Um, so basically, we'll find out that that is a short-term gain, but long-term negative when when that method is used and i i think that uh, <laughs> sorry that can of worms is opened um i think that and this is this is not just farmers so i, I don't want i don't want that to be um misconstrued oh they're attacking farmers they're saying they're doing it wrong no okay i'll just use timber same way pine plantation it can all be planted the same day it can be planted in the same exact spacing and then it can be managed the same way 15, 20 years later. It can have a, a thinning through there, thinning the entire stand, and so on and so forth. So it's not just farmers, but that was just an example. But I think it's important to talk about that's what we commonly see. That's what many people can associate a monoculture with. Um, and the reason is that, again, it's just more profitable for the people who are reaping those crops or, or trying to grow those crops to be able to do it in a monoculture setting. Adam, anything else to add no, to that? No, it pretty well covers it. Um, when it comes to the pros, it pretty much comes down to because it's simple. And because it is simple, that means it's more money for the farmer. But the problem with that is is it's just like you said. To me, it's like a steroid shot um, in, in sports. Some athletes used to take them. I don't think they take it as much now, but they got short-term gains, but long-term it did it does terrible things to the body. Mm-hmm. And so the short-term gains are great for the profit to the farmer, but long-term it's it's a big negative to the soil and overall to the environment. And, and I want to I make this clear too that, you know, no, again, we're not picking on farmers, but we're saying as food plotters, as hunters, as land managers, we are simply taking a lot of the the practices that have been used in an agricultural setting because they want the highest yields and it makes the most sense and they're doing so many more acres than a farmer I mean a hunter is, a land manager is. Yet we've we've replicated or used the similar practices that they have in their situation when in reality, we have a completely different situation and should have a completely different mindset. So that's where we're coming from. And I think it's important to draw that line and now get into the cons of monocultures. Well, obviously, um, there's a lot of cons. We got longer list of cons than pros, uh, which so is why we're having this podcast. With monocultures regarding soil is the fact that um, we basically underutilize soil nutrients. So we'll cover this in a little bit, but you're going to hear stuff reiterated throughout the podcast. But certain species of plants mine certain species of nutrients or minerals, 
And so if you're only planting one species, that let's just say that one species mines a lot of nitrogen and it's pulling nitrogen out of the soil or, or let's just say phosphorus out of the soil. It keeps pulling that up. Well, there's other nutrients that are just slowly washing away or going through the soil profile to where they become out of reach for the next species. So we're basically losing a lot of nutrients due to planting monocultures. Another com that comes right to mind is the fact that what happens when you have disease? What happens when you have an insect that just comes in? You have, you're basically putting all your eggs in one basket for this crop to basically supply you with everything that you're looking for. Basically that you, you're again, putting all your eggs in one basket and then that insect or that pest, that disease comes in and wipes out, totally wipes out all of your crop, all of your hope, boom, gone in an instant. Could be a weekend, could be a day, and you're just left with dead crops, not achieving your goals. So if you have a monoculture, you're more prone to that. Your risk is higher of that situation. It's basically putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Another one where you're talking about the insects, when you're planting a species monoculture and you have a group of insects come in and you're like, oh my, you get a pesticide out or insecticide out and you start spraying it. You're just trying to kill out pretty much all the insects in that field. Mm-hmm. It To me, it's like, let's just use Detroit. Well, there's a lot of crime in Detroit. Let's just bomb it. But there's still some good people in there because you use that bomb to try and annihilate the bad but you take away some of the good so there's beneficial insects is what you're trying to say yeah in amongst all that and all insects again like i said aren't bad they're doing a job it's just the fact that you have such a high concentration of that in a certain area because you simply planted a monoculture and you put all that that risk into that one thing being successful and it's been easily destroyed because of its it's been planted in a monoculture yep so there's a huge risk to, to that being um, taken away from you. And you have to monitor it very closely. That's why you see farmers out there all the time in the crop fields where they're taking samples, sending it to the lab, or just monitoring it themselves. They're looking for those disturbances, those instances where they may need to come back in and spray or, or add this to the... Um, they're seeing that that plant is stressed. So they need to come back in and spray... Um, you know, zinc or, or nitrogen over top of their um, their crop to basically repair it. But if you have just that monoculture, again, it's a high-risk situation. Another big con in for the hunters to think about is if you plant just one species, and let's just say you just plant soybeans, you put all your eggs in that one basket, and let's say it feeds the deer through the summer, but fall rolls around, and they wipe out the bean pods before you before you ever get time to go and hunt. You put all your eggs in that one basket, and now the beans aren't there, and you're basically left with nothing to hunt. Mm-hmm. But by planting diversity, you, there's always there should be, hopefully, you're bettering your chances at having something always growing to where there's something always attractive for you to hunt over. Correct, correct. And in a lot of those instances that, instances that we've talked about is, okay, if something comes up in this monoculture, now it requires me to go and put more inputs to that crop. So basically you're cutting down on the profitability of that crop that you had so much you banked on. Um, so again, if something comes through, uh, whether it be disease or 
be an insect and you got to go in and spray, that's more money out of your pocket to manage that. Whereas on the flip side, if you're playing the diversity, you've got other things that basically, they've got your back. It's insurance that, you know what, I've planted three species, they're only getting the one, and i got two still working for me. I don't have to actually go out there and put more input in there. I did it right from the start, and I'm good to go. Yeah. Um, you're, you've got the better notes. I'm trying to look at my phone here from screenshots. So <laughs> usually when we're at home, I have my notepad there, but today I'm trying to look on my phone and, and try not to get lost and let the screen go black. But, um, as I mentioned the first time was, um, you're underutilizing soil nutrients. You're also, because of that, decreasing soil fertility, um, overall. So as time progresses, you're slowly turning your soil less productive. And, and for a farmer, that's your, that is your bread and butter. That is your money maker. And it all goes to the soil. Like, it all that's gets where it back starts. to the soil. It starts from the soil. So you've got to treat that like it's your little baby. And if we're planting single species monocultures in the soil year after year after year, we're not taking care of the baby. We're, no. not, we're not treating it or, or providing it the environment that it needs to be the most profitable and productive. You know, so it seems counterintuitive to be planting, you know, basically you're you're thinking of just, just what's above the ground on a year-to-year basis. You're not thinking of what's happening necessarily under the ground and what may be lacking there and limiting what happens above the ground. You know, you're thinking of the of the gains or the profit eight months from now or correct. six months from now and not the negative ten years from now. I'm correct, reading a very correct. interesting book right now that's talking about Farmers who have started farming the property, plowing and disking and doing all this stuff, spraying massive amounts of herbicides over these years and years and years and years, and they're into it going, man, I want to pass this farm on to my mm-hmm. child and my mm-hmm. grandchildren. And they're looking at it from when they first started farming it to now, and they're like, if that trend continues, right. there's not going to be any profit here for them to continue farming mm-hmm. it, so I need to change my ways. Same thing Same thing with the guy who's got timber ground. He's like, I've got pine plantation. You know, When I cut that, that's going to be that's gonna help pay for my kid's college. And that, A lot of people find themselves in that boat. They've got it planned out 20 years from now. Yep, all right, that's going to help pay for, for Johnny to go to college. But you're putting all your eggs in that basket and, and not um, thinking of the, the possibilities of that crop being a failure. And I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer or anything, but I'm simply trying to say, hey, that's a possibility, and there may be another way to look at it or no, another way to manage it um, so that you can ensure or or increase the, the likelihood that your profit will be there in the end. Um, so I just, you know, that's that's kind of where we're coming from. And again, we're going to we're going to tie this right back into wildlife and habitat and food plot situations right here, right now. So I think it's... Understand, there. yes, that's where you're going. I'm going to jump. I, I read your mind and read where you're going. So the next line, we're drawing the line between agriculture and making profit off those crops and hunters. So when you think about it in the ag side, they're trying to make a profit. Um, so they've got their techniques, different things. But when it comes to hunters, I think the only thing a lot of times we're trying to do is plant a food plot that's beneficial to hunt over. And exactly. You're you're thinking of a small window that is going to provide you the opportunity to increase your chances of killing a great deer. That's That's what you're planting the food plot for. When in reality, we got to remember that 
that whether it's a deer, whether it's a turkey, a quail, or a rabbit, they're out there 24-7, and they depend on resources year-round, not just one that you put your effort into to be beneficial during October and November, maybe even late December. No, no, they're out there January 1st through December 31st, so if you're not providing them, or if you're putting all your efforts into a small window throughout that time period, that that year that they need to be successfully successful, safe, and uh, productive and healthy, then you're you're missing you're missing the point. You're missing the ball game. And we can plant things beyond just monocultures in our food plots, or monocultures in a CRP setting, um, or or manage our timber in a way that enhances more than just one species of of trees and and age class of trees even even goes into that detail so it's important to i think sit back and listen to the benefits that are going to we're going to talk about right here um involving the habitat and how all different species utilize them at different points of the year and why again that diversity in your habitat is so critical to be successful you know you think about it if you have a big whatever your farm is and the ratio is 75% 75% a monoculture, let's just say it's soybeans or whatever it is, you're only providing, when once that crop is gone... Well, just do cor- a, corn. Okay, that's yes. even That's even better. You planted nothing but corn. During the summer months, you're not getting much forage. You're not providing much forage um, to the wildlife, such as deer or turkeys, um, and, and even as far as the quail and everything else goes. But then once that crop is cut or harvested or whatever there's a small window where it's providing food the rest of the time it's providing only really a little bit of cover but no forage right it's ter- you're it, you're giving it, table scraps yeah i mean is what it is because at that point you're harvesting it again we know we got we got to understand and find the balance between a farmer being successful and making a living um and, and you know supporting a family but then again, there's, we're just saying there's other practices that he might be able to um, use that are going to help the wildlife at the same time and not cut anything from, from his profit. And if you do something like that, there's going to come a time where they're going to have to go elsewhere to make a For living. Sure. And so then that comes down to the competitive spirit of a hunter going, I want the deer to spend as much time on my property as they can. And if you're, if that's your game plan then you might think about diversity. Right or wrong, and everyone's situation is completely different. You know, hey, my neighbor um, shoots everything that walks. He doesn't even know what a hunting season is. You, you've, everyone's heard those phrases. Everyone's made those speculations. So if if you're the one who's playing in the monocultures and not thinking about what the deer need outside of hunting season, what, what why are you blaming him or why are you pointing fingers? Make sure you do everything to cover your basis on your property first, and then if he, they continue to do things like that, now you've got now you've got a situation upon your hands. What it's, what it's basically saying is, hey, control what you can control and make your property property the best it can be year round, and then go after everything else. Yeah. So, so are we ready for Oldfield? Yes, Oldfield. Now we talked about Oldfield a lot. Um, and basically, when we refer to that, we're talking about a field that was once cattle pasture or crops that has been left alone, and grasses and forbs and other things have grown back. Uh, young, young trees, young saplings, 
Um, all kinds of diversity is growing in this area and providing not only food, but also cover. I think that's the, that is the benefit right there, is that food aspect and then the cover as well. So now let's compare again that back to that cornfield. I've got a 200 acre cornfield and then I had a 200 acre pasture that I sprayed out and now I have old field. I've got, I'm basically killing two birds with one stone in those 200 acres and supplying forage throughout the entire growing season. Then cover, I'm cover, basically I'm looking at a calendar and saying that 200 acres is so much more beneficial throughout an entire year than that cornfield is. I'm getting more bang for my buck if I devote those 200 acres to a diverse amount of, of, of species that are achieve so many different things for me throughout different times of the growing season and then into the winter as well. And you don't even have to, a lot of times you don't even have to buy the seed. No. You're just Man, letting nature cheap. run its course, yes. And, and here's the huge benefit, I think about this a lot, whenever you look at an old field, how often do you see it getting bush hogged over? And all the young saplings are, the sumac and the young Mm -hmm. oak saplings are getting bush hogged, probably during the fall, let's just say. And that food source that was going to be there for the winter months of the buds from those young trees that were going to provide great forage for the wildlife are now gone. Gone. The cover is gone. So it's important that they're there in the old field because they not only provide great structure and great stability for the native grasses and forbs to kind of lean on each other and support each other standing upright, but also provides food during one of the most crucial times of the year. That system, as as random and chaotic as it is, is 100% natural, and that's the way nature worked. It's simply, you know, I think we've talked about before, soil doesn't want to be exposed. It doesn't want to be bare. So it repairs itself by allowing things to grow. And if you allow that natural seedbed to express itself, it's simply repairing or protecting the soil by allowing those species to grow. And that, again, was done right from the from the very beginning. He got it right from the start. Didn't he, he did. I he think certainly about, did. Going back to the food with the saplings during the winter months, but there's always something growing to where there's food from January with the saplings all the way up to December, all the, all the way throughout the year, there's food and cover available. That settles it. You I, said I, chaos, I, and that triggered something. <laughs> I think I'm going to name my children, if I have them, chaos and diversity, because I love oh. those words so much. And and then their middle names, both of them are going to be Oldfield. Oldfield. Keith. Chaos. <laughs> yeah. Oldfield, <laughs> Chaos, Keith. That's right. Yep. That's, your wife is not going to go for that. Like I don't think so either. I, I know. I know I'm a tightwad. You make fun of me for being a tightwad. My wife does. I can't help it. I don't know if it's just the way I was raised or what. But like, that's why I love Oldfield, man. I ain't got to plan it. I got to just maintain it. And it was done right. And I know I can bank on those acres devoted to Oldfield supplying such an incredible food source and cover source, security source, for wildlife of many different species. Now, Deer, say, turkey, quail. I will say, now, some you can't just take any field and make it old field highly no. profitable. There are times where you have to plant grasses and forbs because the soil was, whatever, cultivated for so many years, so that seed bank is no longer there. There's times where you're going to have to plant them, um, in, but in some instances, you may not have to. Well, and the other thing is, too, once you say, okay, devote that to Oldfield, 
it, the work's not done, you you got to come back and, and manage and make sure that the right species are growing. And if you have these invasives or you don't have enough forbs, there's some more management that needs to be done, whether it eradicate those species or promote forbs. But to me, it, it, it's so easy to do that. And it's just a, it's just a, a matter of, of managing it and overseeing it and redirecting if needed. Mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the key part of the of all of whatever farming for wildlife, managing land management, whatever you want to call it. It all comes back to you have to do something to keep it in a productive state. For, for example, sure. I think way down in the notes and I know we're going to go throughout this whole page. We're, we're probably we have jump three around. page of notes by the way and we usually only have one. So we have to move quick but um, I think of wilderness areas a lot, like national mm-hmm. forest wilderness areas where there's not supposed to be any type of equipment or management done. It's just supposed to be a preservation of what's there. But unfortunately, due to non-native species or lack of management, you know, I think in my beliefs, it's if we're trying to replicate and let it be preserved the way it was before man settled here then we should manage it the way it was managed before we were here by large herbivores or by fire um large herbivores for example would be a buffalo um an elk things like that and but removing them from the scene and removing fire is basically saying we're preserving it as what like there's nothing I, I i don't understand that concept so a lot of times you see those areas get taken over by invasives and just continue to be taken over by Cedar trees, Cerise Lespedeza, whatever you want to call it, whatever's in your area. So, um, wow. I don't know where I got off on that tangent, but here we are. Here we are. You want to move on to soil benefits? Yeah, Let's absolutely. do it. I love the benefits, and this is so so misunderstood. I, I, I guess I shouldn't say misunderstood, but not even understood, I think, is the right is the right term because... Managing the soil is not cool. Let's just say it. Yeah, no. Soil. I mean, we want to play in the dirt, but we we don't even understand the dirt. Oh, you and just made a huge sin by I calling said dirt. soil dirt. It's not soil if you're just playing and not understanding dirt is it. Dead soil is living. There you go. So we gotta understand what's happening underneath the soil. We're always thinking and looking at okay, what's above it, but there's more biotic life in healthy soil than there is above the soil. Let that sink in for a second. Like that's how diverse it is in a healthy working system in the soil. I think Gabe Brown says or said it best that there's more living things in a tablespoon of healthy soil than there is living things on above the soil on Earth. That's pretty pretty stinking shocking. That's unbelievable. You think of all the things that's living above soil, and then you take that little bit amount of of soil yourself of healthy soil it's mind-blowing but guess what there's not bacteria, as much bacteria microbes soil. everything there's, yeah, there's not, not as much healthy soil as you would suspect but um, because there's so much being there's so much soil being destroyed across the country and across the world it can be destroyed by um a lot of disking things farming methods it can be destroyed by planting or just having these monocultures and how, how does a monoculture destroy this this the soil well it has one single type of root system in that soil you're getting only one structure in that entire portion of soil if, if let's say it's let's just say it's a 
I'm going to go away from a crop field for a second so we get some diversity, huh? But let's go to a pine plantation. Or, or no, let's go to a, a pasture. You've got, you've got tall grass on the side of a fescue. road. Yeah. On a slope. Tall fescue, six inch depth of, of its root system, maybe. Whereas if you compare that to native grasses, you're looking at like 10 feet, six feet. It's unbelievable the difference. And if you just have that one layer across the entire top of the whole soil profile, just six inches deep, the benefit of that soil working between the layers is not there because you have one single type of root system that's active in that soil. And you can't basically allow that soil to communicate with with the different layers at different depths because of that one single root system. So it can't even operate to its full potential. Yeah. Uh, We covered soil health even more, so let's keep going so we can finish this up under two hours. (laughs) Under three. (laughs) So plant diversity. Um, By planting diversity, you get different blooms, different flowers at different times, and different species house different insects. Correct. So no matter what you plant, if you're planting... all kinds of different diversity. Each one of those has a different bloom, blooms at a different time of the year. It's always providing some sort of food or some sort of um, pollen to an insect. And therefore, it's bringing in more insects, different types of insects, yada, yada, yada. So insects, when we talk about diversity in insects, um, that means basically numerous species, both predator and prey, come to these diversity of plants. Like pollinators. So we have different types of bees, different types of wasps, different types of moths, um, always coming into these different types of blooms. Now you have diversity in the plants. You're going to have something blooming in May that's going to also have another species that blooms in June and then another species that blooms in July. Get the picture? And, And why is this important? Because those insects mean forage for certain game species and i think this is if if you're still with us i I pray you are this is where it ties all back into game species hunting i'm not done with you're not done i'm not done with plants yet so for example like you may have uh canadian violets growing in and whoop i'm trying to navigate through my phone here canadian violets that are blooming in may march through may then you've got black-eyed susans going in june through august September and October, you have goldenrods and late purple asters. So you have something always blooming, bringing in different insects, different species throughout the year. So you're providing food for the pollinators throughout the summer. And the pollinators and insects are also food for birds like turkeys and quail. Now we can move on. There we go. So that's why it's so important to offer diversity among the habitat to offer different forage types that are going to then trickle down and bring in other insects. For quail instance, let's just throw out quail and run through just super briefly the importance or, or what a quail needs throughout different portions of the year. So, so during the summer months or during the like spring through the summer, a lot of their diet is consumed of, is made up of insects. So the more insects you can bring in, the more food you're gonna have for the quail. And the way to bring in more insects is by planting different species. During the fall and winter, a lot of their diet is made up of seeds. So the more seeds you provide, the more food you provide. 
and therefore planting diversity means that you're going to have more insects, more seeds, more food for the quail, while also the whole time you have different species providing different types of cover um, and protection for the quail. And that they're going to use those different types of cover throughout the year too. They need different types of cover from the summer months to the winter months. And all that diversity works together to provide a perfect habitat for quail. But it's a matter of having more than just one single species benefiting. So if your property is is dominated by one species, then you're probably not going to have very good habitat for quail. Yeah, if you have nothing but grass. Let's just say you think of prairie. Oh, there's tons of quail. But during the fall and winter, they need a lot more woody structure, um, saplings, plum thickets, mm-hmm. things like that, that those same species, those woody species can provide food for the deer. So protection for the quail and turkeys, but also food for the deer. So very similar to what the quail need, turkey need escape cover. They need nesting cover. They need brood rearing cover. They need things that are going to produce lots of seed for them. They're going to need different forages that bring in different insects during the growing season. And all that, again, is to say, hey, a diversity among your habitat, whether it be acorn-producing trees, hard mass trees, um, to seed production, to insect production, all that is so necessary. You can't just have bank on one thing or, or a monoculture to say, oh, I'm good. I've got a soybean field. I love crop country. I love farmland. I love Illinois. I love Kansas. I love Iowa. Heck, I love, I love soybeans. Yeah, I do too. But I'm not going to sit back and just say, oh, I got soybeans. I'm good. I want diversity throughout my time devoted to planting. I want to offer many different things. And sometimes it may not even be planting. It may be my management strategy. It may be managing the timber to produce different um We'll get there. I'm getting. I'm jumping ahead. So, like soybeans, sure, it's great for the deer during their growing season, and but that's not providing much for the bees. That's not providing much for the quail. So, or if it, or if it is, it's a it's a very small just, window. It's a window. Yeah. It's not a prolonged benefit. You're basically devoting all those acres or whatever it is you planted of that monoculture to one species or profit, rather than. Um, a bunch of species providing a bunch of benefits to a bunch of different types of insects, birds, and animals. Basically, you're you're putting all your eggs in one basket again, and that basket is only available for a very short amount of time, even though, yeah, some, some pollinators are going to benefit from those soybeans. Yeah, some turkeys are going to benefit. Those deer are going to benefit too. But it, it's it's for certain portions of the year. Not yeah. not a whole property devoted to soybeans or not a whole food plot regime devoted to soybean production. No, if, if that's the approach you've, you've been taking, hopefully this is going to suggest to you, I need to think outside the box. I need to provide something else because like you're saying, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm hitting this window and maybe this window, but I need to think outside of that. I need to expand on what I can do and what my property can really produce. Yep. You wrote the notes for deer, so yes. I'll let you take that. This is actually a, a quote, but it, it goes into saying just how diverse deer are and their palate, their diet, whatever they're eating. So whitetails have been documented to eat over 400 species of plants in the southeast alone. Regular sampling from a wide range of species allows deer to continually evaluate new sources of nutrients. However, the majority of their diet comes from relatively small number of forages. 
Although deer consumed over 140 plant species in one study, about one-third of these species accounted for 93% of their overall diet. So, that's still a huge amount of, of diversity in a diet. They've been documented to eat over 400 species. Who said that? This is from Mississippi State University. Okay. It's, it goes with the old phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Mm-hmm. You can plant one species to feed the deer, but you're not going to force him to eat only that species. He's going to eat stuff around the edge. He's or on she. his way. Oh, or yeah. she, yeah. yeah. When when they get up from their bed, they're going to start foraging and, and making their way to that, to maybe it is that crop field. Um, they're going to eat a certain, a, a number of different species that they're, that are going to provide so many different other things. And that's why, again, whether you're managing for turkey, whether you're managing for deer, each one of those individuals within that population is an individual. Each one is going to need a different nutrient because those bodies, each one of their bodies is different. It's no different from a human. You know, we go to the doctor, get checked out, oh, well, you're deficient in this, or you're deficient in that, or you need to be taking this supplement because you're deficient. Each deer, each turkey is different. And you can't just say, oh, I've got, you know, 10% of my acres in this, 15 in this, and I'm good. You have to have those native species that are basically account for the entire population instead of just the basis that most individuals would fall in, if you will. If you want optimal productivity in your whitetail herd and your turkey, man, you got to think outside the box. If you want to produce profit more or be more productive for all of wildlife, and I'm assuming that if you're listening to this podcast, you're you're looking at just land management, not just focusing specifically on one species. And maybe you are, but you still like to benefit the others. Sure. This is, this is a huge um, advantage to providing diversity, is you're not only benefiting one species, you're benefiting numerous species. Yeah. And the next one we have... Um, before we move on to different alternatives, is air quality. Oh, we just talk, we're talking about air quality on a hunting habitat. Now this is short, but it's it's huge because we all breathe air, so we need to look at trying to make it better um, and make sure it continues to be made. <laughs> so more species planted equals more species growing at various times of the year. So therefore, there's more photosynthesis performed throughout the year meaning there's less carbon in the air and there's more of it in the soil that's the way we want it so that was a big word adam you like that you and nailed I kinda, it blah, 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 it was like it was very i could hear your s's yeah photos so so does synthesis you nailed it oh there you go so when you're looking at the pros to um diversity there's air quality soil quality different um benefits to deer turkey quail all kinds of songbird species, all kinds of insects, reptiles, amphibians. The whole world benefits from diversity. It's amazing. And and I if you're if you like this podcast, then message us and we'll give you some material to read up on it because once you start to sink your teeth into this type of information and how different environments or different ecosystems work with one another, Man, it is wild. It will blow your mind just how intricate and how detailed every single thing is. Um, so if this, if you're geeking out on this, 
Be careful just what know. you wish for, though, when you ask for material to read or what things to read. Because I got a stack of like twelve <laughs> yeah. books sitting on my desk that I still have to read, and a stack that I have read that I'm going to send your way to have you read. So we may just—it's incredible. It's incredible. So if you like this stuff, know that there's a lot more resources, books, and stuff out there to be able to continue your education on this. All right, so food plot alternatives. The Ooh. benefits, now getting back to the hunting side of it, the benefits of planting mixes and diversity. Of course, as we said earlier, the more species you plant, the more types of root systems you have. So if you have a hard pan, you have all types of different species of roots or different types of root systems busting up that hard pan that are also reaching deep down and pulling up different nutrients from way down deep in the soil profile and bringing it back up to the top. The more diversity you have, there's always cycling going on, so there's always nutrients being pulled deep and released back up on top for the next plant to grow from. Bingo. I, I think of our spring mixture, and we've talked about it. We've covered it in a podcast, so if you're thinking about, okay, what, what are you guys planting in the spring? How, how many species are you planting? It's like 10 to 12, and again, we cover that. But after, when we were monitoring that this past growing season, Adam, we were going out there and constantly looking at what all the pollinators and all the insects that were that were basically working it these fields over. There was a hum, there was a buzz. You know that buckwheat just jumped right out the gate. Well, not and, even that. Let's talk about the fall. Right when we were getting ready to plant the spring, we had crimson clover, oh, which yeah. was in full bloom. We had mm-hmm. hairy vetch, which was in full bloom. A little, uh, it actually came into bloom a little bit later. Arrowleaf clover was blooming a little bit later. There was all types. We had the pollen from the cereal grains, cereal mm-hmm. rye, and, and wheat were all pollinating. There was just bees flying everywhere. And there was so much moisture in the ground at that point, too. There was, there was frogs. frogs. Frogs in the food plot because they had so much cover and so much moisture at the ground. It was incredible to see, basically, that food plot was alive with activity beyond just game species because there was diversity within those acres. It was cool. It was, was neat. Yeah, toads. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> toads. Toads. And frogs and bees and all kinds of different things and all those things work together and provide food for other species so needless to say when we planted that spring mixture throughout that growing season we had so many different types of insects coming at different times and that was forage for turkeys and you might think oh those species they didn't really you know provide that much but again that buckwheat jumped first out of the gate in that mixture and quickly produced a seed that you know would have provided forage for turkeys and for quail. There's doves all year round in that plot. Um, Except for incredible. when it's dove season. Yeah, yeah. But still, it's just planting these and comparing to, let's say, a, a crop field that is just a monoculture, whether it be wheat, whether it be cotton, whatever it is, world of difference. Yeah. World of difference. And uh, there was one more thing I wanted to mention in that. Oh, uh, and these different types of species, when you plant one species or and then you plant maybe, let's say you plant wheat and then you plant turnips in, a, in like a 10-foot or 20-foot wide strip, just wheat, just turnips, just rape, just uh, cereal rye. They all do okay. But when you mix them together, and this is documented stuff, we can maybe put the link in it on our, on our show notes. But then you mix all those together and you plant it, and the... the study I've watched and, and uh, 
watched the video on YouTube. It was fascinating because the when planted alone, they didn't do too great. And this was in a drought. They were testing to see how they benefited each other. But even in the drought, the mix was growing just like normal because they were all supporting each other and helping each other along to where you couldn't even tell you were in a drought just because they planted diversity. And and one may think that, oh, you've got all that competition rather right there growing in amongst each other. But in, in reality, there's plants communicate with one another. They send out feelers. They talk to one another. Especially and, in healthy soil. Exactly. And so when that when that's present, there is a sense of, you know, communication and a sense of good competition i'm not i won't say competition but a other species basically leaning on other species to help them through and so on and so forth you know we talked about competition so, a lot in, in the timber so i don't want there to be confusion last week but in this in this aspect those different species the variety was extremely beneficial yes through basically through mycorrhizal fungi that let's say a legume fixates nitrogen and it doesn't need that nitrogen through the healthy soil, it can transfer that nitrogen over to a species that needs it. And let's say that species has an abundance of phosphorus or potassium that it doesn't need. It can transfer that back over to another plant that needs it through mycorrhizal fungi. So I know that was a little bit in-depth, but that's the benefit of healthy soil. And when you have healthy soil, you don't need to fertilize as much. You don't need to lime because it's all right there working for you. That's another huge savings that we didn't mention earlier. Yep. And so that goes back again to, you know, the cons. You don't, the, the cons of, of not planting um, this mixture, the, the cons of planting the monoculture, your inputs, again, are just stacked one on top of another. You just keep adding, keep adding, when reality, the, the natural way is for it to all work and lean on one another. So planting these mixtures is extremely beneficial to that aspect. Next up, timber, Matt. Timber. All right. We want to have in the timber varying ages of, of tree species. We want different species. We want shrubs. We want grasses. We want brambles. And you think, okay, we, monoculture goes beyond just a species. Monoculture can also, in this realm, especially dealing with timber, is going to talk about age, too, and the age of the timber that's regenerating. And I think it was actually a podcast with Matt Ross um, from the QDMA. He talked about ideally when he's managing timber, he would like to see a wave-like form throughout the timber. And what that is, you've got tall, you've got medium, you've got short, and that produces diversity within the timber. Let's let's think of like um, a white oak stand or a cluster of, of densely packed white oaks um, in the timber, really, the benefit of them, if let's say if they're you know they're of age that they're producing white oak acorns, they're producing white oak acorns. That that's really it, and that's a very again short amount of time that those acres devoted to the white oaks are are beneficial to the deer and to the turkeys. So if we if we make that comparison to a wave-like form. We can have, still have those white oaks, but we can also have shrubs. We can also have grasses and brambles mixed in with everything and produce, again, let's think, let's think about that calendar, more benefit in those acres from January 1 through December 31st in the year for many different species if we go beyond just thinking of, you know, 
hey, I've got mature closed canopy forests. We need to, we need to think diversity within those those stands of timber. And to achieve this, <clears throat> like we always talk about, is open up the canopy, use prescribed fire. There's so many different seeds within natural seed bed that really they need prescribed fire to grow. They need that present. And when you continue to use prescribed fire, you're encouraging different species to grow. Adam, you and I, we both read this uh, this thing. It was out of southern Iowa. Was the, the property they started to do some restoration, some woodland oh, restoration? No, it was Savannah restoration. Savannah restoration. It was near right. Leon, Iowa. Yep. And basically, they um, the this couple bought this farm and were like, they were not not hunters but nature enthusiasts, and they were like, I really want to make this. I want to improve this farm and make it more beneficial to the wildlife. And so they had a, a state employee come out and. They basically immediately pointed and said, you notice all this, like all these little species, little blue stem and wildflowers that are growing in the understory and you have these huge oaks scattered around, like you have a dying savanna here um, and you need to open that back up, manage it with fire and, and basically get it back to its na- natural state because that's what's most beneficial. So they did that. They started opening up the canopy, prescribed fire. All of a sudden they had this mushroom pop up. They're like, what in the world? Well, that mushroom has only been found in one other place in the U.S., and it was there all along. It just needed the right conditions to grow. And it needed that fire Fire. to jumpstart. Sunlight. Everything. And, And basically build that community back of diverse species so that it could benefit and, and produce an environment that that rare species could grow. But again, it's opening up the canopy. It's encouraging diversity within timbered acres. Um, another way to do this is by edge feathering. If you've got you know hard edge around a food plot or around a crop field. Why is that? Uh, this is kind of what I was thinking was. Mm-hmm. We always talk about deer being creatures of the edge. Woo, creatures of the edge. But we have this hard edge everywhere. You drive Every across the country where we and go. it's crop field, hard timber, or pasture, Straight to timber. There's not this stair-step effect of, okay, here we go from short grass or grasses or old field to young forest to mid-range forest to old mature forest. It's it's, uh, it's basically one short or the other to mature. Yeah, it it's, is. It's one or the other. Young or old, right? And or or <laughs> I hate to say it, but sometimes it's like unbeneficial, unbeneficial, because you have a pasture, and then you have closed canopy for It's like, oh, bah! Yeah. Just at least create an edge or something. So, um, edge feathering. Gosh. Cutting some trees. Even treating some trees with herbicides, so it's not so much just young saplings, but you start getting a lot more early succession, or, or grasses, or forbs growing mm-hmm. right there. Um, so, that's a great way to do that on the edge of all your food plots, or the edge of your fields, and the benefit to edge feathering is you can drop trees and steer deer because you basically build a natural fence um, and and have deer going on one end or the other, but also in the middle of all that, providing great cover and uh, forage for other creatures, including the deer. So that's one way. What else we got here? Young you wrote forest. down fruit trees. Fruit trees. Since we're talking about timber, I, I added fruit trees because this kind of goes back to what you're talking about, like when you see peach trees or... Um, there's a bunch of species of fruit trees that um, that don't they're self-pollinated. They don't need other species to provide uh, to help bear fruit to cross-pollinate. But in the fruit tree world, especially in a food plot, when you're planting apple trees, pear trees, different things like that, you need diversity so you can cross-pollinate 
So you actually have trees that produce fruit. Now, if you were to just take and go, okay, I want to have apples, and you just plant one species of apple, there's a good chance you're not going to bear any or, or much fruit because you don't have other types of species there to provide pollination for the bees to cross-pollinate the trees and provide fruit for, on all of them. So that's why I added that. Diversity, Diversity, baby. diversity, diversity. Grasses. I'm almost out of breath. We're trying to get through <laughs> Grasses. this. Grasses. I, I know. know. We're, we're, we're killing it right now. We've got... We, we can get through this, but we're, we're going to have to keep rolling. Go ahead. Grasses. Um, grasses. Tall, short, bushy, greening up early versus late. If you're going into planting um, CRP ground or you just, just want to restore um, a grassland scenario on your property and think about the diversity in those grasses. Think about what each one offers, how each one may grow. I've seen so many um, acres devoted to CRP that is just planted in straight big blue stem. And and you get there to, you know, after a frost or you, the first um, snowfall, yeah. oh, and gosh. it's just laid flat. I mean, that field could have been devoted to diversity among those grasses. Well, you went from six-foot-tall grasses to flat as a pancake uh, and after And literally one flat, snow. like ankle shin high but it's just all laid over and now that that acres those acres are, are are providing very little cover for many species and it's like if if it was just done right and there was a diversity among those um species planted you could have cover during that time of the year the and flip side of that is you see a lot of people now they're going away from big blue and Indian grass on screens, and they're planting switchgrass mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it does stand up to the snow. But unfortunately, it grows so so darn tall and so thick, aggressive that you can't hardly like a deer doesn't even walk through it. So basically, you're plant, planting a fence. Mm-hmm. Now that may be what you're going for, but there's other ways that you can have the same effect but plant diversity. So even though deer aren't walking through it, you're still providing more benefit to the other species that are on your property. Mm-hmm. That's why when it comes to screening, we talk so much about planting different types of shrubs, different types of grasses, different types of forbs. So it still provides the same purpose. The goal is there. And of achieved. screening, you can't see through it, but it also provides great habitat for the rest of the animals. Correct, correct, correct. So think outside the box. Don't just fall into that that scenario of oh just just one species good enough for me. I think of the song "Lean on Me" when it Lean comes to grasses. Me. I won't sing. I won't do um, that to you guys. Please, thank you. I'm sorry. And, uh, I won't you, do that. You look at all these grasses. Like if you plant just blue stem, like Matt mm-hmm. said earlier, it's just going to fall over with the first snow. But if you plant blue stem mixed with little blue and switchgrass and different types of forbs, goldenrod, um, different types of native sunflowers. They now all are going to support each other, and they're going to lean on each other, and they're going to stand a lot longer through, and maybe even year-round, because they have support from another plant. And another thing, don't don't get mad at, at um, some woody woody cover in there, plums, some oak saplings, sumac. some sumac, some dogwoods. Man, they how do much, a great job in there. How much have we seen sumac this year broke off because so many deer are eating? Oh, I know. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So next one, agriculture. Ooh, yes. We shared a post, well, I don't know, a couple weeks ago about interseeding and, and using a no-till drill at some portions of the year. And you can do it just by broadcasting too, but thinking outside the box when it comes to um, your typical, your conventional planting um, time frame, your window. So these farmers are, are, are trying new things to increase the productivity of the soil, the farm, and they're 
planted their their cash crop, their corn, and then have gone back and within the rows of those the corn that they will be harvesting, they're planting. Uh, some of them are planting um, cereal grains or just mixtures of of, of fall. Um, fall annuals, whether it be rape, whether it be turnips, into the spaces between the corn, into the space. Sorry. I'm trying to communicate <laughs> yeah. with you off screen because you're like, blasting Wait, into that mic. I mean, I'm wearing the headphones right now. I'm like, geez, man, get away from that mic. You're hurting This is my really ears. important. Yeah. So they're going back and planting in between these rows. And as that corn grows up, it gives it enough enough window basically to germinate and to grow, begin growing, and that corn grows up and, and kind of shades some things. But they're they've realized that that competition is not competition really at all. The studies have proven that the yields in the crops, the crop fields, the corn fields that are planted with and without this interseeded cover crop during the the typical growing season that the corn is produced are the same. I mean, we're talking like maybe one to three bushels an acre difference. Like overall, the benefit, again, that long-term benefit is so much greater by having these cover crops during the, the growing season present is huge. Because you think of all that ground, that soil, that really what's a corn planted on 30-inch rows, you've got a lot of acres in between that soil that's really not, um, in between those the corn stalks, excuse me, that's not being used throughout a growing season. But then when they plant it, now it's 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 helping cycle nutrients. It's providing a root system. There's less erosion. Um, how many people have walked through a cornfield and, and just they're looking down because a lot of times that you know a pre-emergent um, is sprayed, like it's bare. There's nothing there. It's underutilized. Well, that goes that goes right hand in hand with. It's bare ground, so therefore nature's way is to grow something to protect that bare ground. And over time, we've got these species that are growing that have become herbicide-resistant. So now we have crops, but we also, right there with them, we have herbicide-resistant plants. Mm -hmm. Weeds, yeah. And we could, basically, by planting diversity, we could help fight that. And that's what a lot Mm -hmm. of research is finding. People are adding different types of species to help fight fight away these herbicide-resistant plants. So we've got, beyond that, in addition to that... We've got winter cover crops, so after harvest is done, come back and plant those those acres with a cover crop um, to cycle the nutrients during, I guess, if you will, the off-season. But really, there's no off-season in the soil. So you want the, the winter cover crops, and then the opportunity, again, to plant those summer cover crops. It's amazing what soil can do when it's healthy. You just need to feed it and continue to feed it, have year-round active growing root systems in that soil to get the most productivity out of it that's what built the prairies baby that's it that's it so continue to think outside the box even if if you're a farmer out there and you want to get the most out of your soil and you you're a hunter too those cover crops dynamite during late season to hunt and uh you can do it after you harvest or i've got a cousin who farms out of virginia and he aerial seeds with the plane before his crops are ever taken out he goes and flies them in and takes them out, takes the crops out, harvested, and he's got a bed of rye right there. And there we go from that right into infiltration. Now, when we talk about that, we're talking about water rainfall infiltrating into the soil 
and down into the underground water aquifers rather than running across the top, hitting the creek, hit going to the river, down the big muddy river or whatever river into the gulf or into the ocean, sitting on top and evaporating. So working on trying to get water into the soil profile, and that is basically by always having something growing, always having a root system, and diversity allowing uh, diversity growing so there's different types of root systems pulling in different types of water or <laughs> different types of water all of water <laughs> same, but different types of root system pulling in the water down in the soil profile filling up the underground aquifers and uh, pulling the water in and holding it under the soil profile rather than on top um, and that's a huge issue it's not so much what we're going to talk about on the hunting profile or hunting podcast but it definitely is something that is improved with diversity something to be educated on that's for sure less runoff less erosion and overall more top healthy soil. earth more <laughs> more topsoil exactly in, so, in our area where we have very little we you gotta protect it you gotta keep it um where it needs to be instead of here's off. a short story and i'll keep this short because i know we have to move on but i have a, a friend farmer who's a very innovative farmer so he plants diversity has different types of plants growing even in he has fescue but he has all kinds of different species growing in his fescue pastures uh, it's really like a living farm i've mentioned it before there's all kinds of stuff going on there more quail in southern missouri than i've seen anywhere and he noticed that basically with water infiltration that he used to you build a pond in any drainage and you get a pond filled up from the runoff. It runs, it rains, runs down the gully, runs in the pond, fills it up. But where he has diversity in all types of different species, he can't get that because the runoff is, there's no more runoff. It just basically goes in the soil profile. So it's kind of changed the way he's looked at having to fill up ponds with rainwater um, because he has so much diversity. So very interesting. Next one, Matt. How do we increase diversity on our farm? Oh, okay. Perfect. That is easy. We always talk about disturbance, that chaos. How can that be achieved? Prescribed fire. Yeah. At varying times of the year, we cover prescribed fire. Part. Yeah. It, it, your your environment, that ecosystem is going to respond differently to a fire in February, March time frame than it would in August and September. You're going to get a different plant response because you're burning at different times of the year. So it's going to achieve different things. So don't just burn during February and March. Think outside the box. Burn at uh, the end of the growing season or even the middle of the growing season if conditions will allow for that. And you'll be amazed at the difference and, and how the, the vegetation responds and what grows back. You may find that old wild mushroom you never knew was there. But but burning at different times is going to basically encourage new growth, different growth, and, and at varied heights throughout the throughout basically another way fall, to, the following years. And another way to increase the diversity is breaking up those fire units. Instead of burning sure. 200 acres, burn it in four 50-acre units. So you have and burn one in spring and one in summer, and then the next year burn another one in late summer, early fall, and the other one in late winter and see what grows back. And I guarantee you're going to see a huge difference. If you've got a field... Uh, whether it be CRP or you've got an, an old field and you're just getting a little too much grass components in there, another way to manage that to increase the amount of forbs is by strip disking. And this is just a really light disc exposing the top couple inches of soil and allowing those forbs to come back in and recolonize within those grassy areas. And that's very, could be sound very contradicting to what we've been talking about with soil health. 
Um, but when we say strip disking or light disking, it's one pass to where you're just seeing a little bit of soil exposed and you're not completely turning the soil profile. Keep that in mind that you're not disking and disking and making multiple passes. It's really going to be one pass, maybe two passes if it's a really thick layer of vegetation. So slight light disking and you're not doing a huge area. You're only doing a couple passes in strips. For sure. And the next one, we've got herbicide application. I think of that whenever we talk about uh, pine plantations and trying mm-hmm. to add diversity. Now, if you're looking at the pines as a cash crop and you're trying to add diversity, another way to do that is by doing harvest, letting sunlight reach the forest floor, and then making sure what you have coming back is diversity. And a lot of times in the south, it's going to be sweet, sweet gums. Gum. So a herbicide application is going to knock those out and allow other species to grow. They're basically achieve incredible goals for you in increasing wildlife productivity in those acres while still getting that cash crop of timber. Now, here's another one of my favorites, rotational grazing or using grazing as a way to increase um, diversity. Grazing at different times of the year, just like we talked in fire. So you could set it up to where you graze this paddock in the spring and the next time you graze it in late summer and you're going to get an increase in diversity on that same paddock. Yes. Next, Invasive species, yuck. Okay, so when we talk about diversity, this is the problem with invasive species. Um, They usually invade so much they have no known predators because they're usually non-native, and therefore they can grow and grow and grow and not have anything trying to knock them out, and they can out-compete native species. And therefore, if it's not managed and they're not taken care of, they end up becoming a monoculture. So that's why invasive species need to be taken care of uh, I can't see it, Matt. You can. Do I have any examples there? Examples of cedar monocultures. Fire is going to help remove that and manage that. Now that goes cutting. with, you know, eastern red cedar is native to the United States, parts of it anyway. And But the reason they become so invasive is because the natural management tool, prescribed fire, was taken out of the system for we the most part. Anymore. We don't use it. Therefore, the cedar had its way, and we get a lot of cedar, cre- cedar tree monocultures. Exactly, exactly. Woo, we. We just we crushed it. that. All right. We crushed that. So I know we're over an hour, so we let's are. go ahead and go into the would you rathers. Here's mine to you. Would you rather, Matt, when you're planting a fruit tree or a fruit tree food plot combination, would you rather mm-hmm. plant a nut bearing tree or trees or fruit bearing trees? I would rather. I think I know what you're going to say, but I'm just like ah, yeah. and we're yeah. in a hurry. So what? What would fruit it be? bearing tree? Why is why so? I think that hard mass can be found throughout many different properties, neighboring properties. They're just more common than a soft mass tree, and they have they provide something much different. Um, you know, they're they're typically sweeter, um, and. I think that their their window to strike a lot of the hard mass trees they they might be able to you know fall in and stay there a while and whatnot but if you're if you're a land manager if you're a gamekeeper and you're watching you know when those that fruit tree is ripe and when it drops that can be an absolute dynamite hunting resource yeah and I I just think it, orchards you you really got to manage them it's a long term deal but. If you have the 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 quantity that can really pull and attract attract deer or attract game, man, you were on it. You're on the X. Yeah. I, that's that's why I'm gonna choose a fruit bearing tree. I would agree. The only the only kind of nut bearing tree that I would really look at maybe would be, 
I would plant some oaks, um, but when we plant oaks, it's more about the, I guess, long term. Oh, these are going to be cool for the next generation you, to look at. But fruit trees, if I'm looking at from a hunting aspect, or trees uh, that I want to plant, I'm going to plant fruit bearing as well. I've what? seen I've seen deer go crazy over hazelnut and uh, Allegheny chinkapin. Those they're more bush shrubby kind of deal. But those those hard mass are great. You know, everyone goes for that sawtooth, but those something to, to also look into. Um, I think, and you're seeing those hybrid chinkapins mm-hmm. come into play. Mm-hmm. And now chestnuts. A lot of people are planting chestnuts, Chinese, yeah. and then even the hybrid American, I think, is coming out, or more people are becoming yep. aware of. So, yeah, those are all awesome, and I, I, I certainly will plant them given the chance. But if I'm looking at it from broad from a broad spectrum, I'm going to try fruit bearing just because it's not really that natural other than the persimmons. Yep, um, in our in our area. Yeah, it's just not occurring. So, so, would you rather, Adam? Let's say you've got a you've got a property. You don't live there. You've got a short amount of time to be able to hunt. You've got you've got a week to be able to hunt. Um, you've got three hit listers up there. Um, you're watching them during during the summer. Last year, it told you you'd have a chance during early season. They're still kind of patternable, um, or the rut. You know, they got on their feet. But you're you're a non-resident at that property. Would you rather take a week? during early season when that season opens up to try and put a tag on one of those deer or would you rather wait and and hunt it during the rut and what's the habitat like yeah no no that's all you get Uh, that's all you get uh that's a terrible would you rather that doesn't give me any i thought you were going to ask me if i'd rather hunt late season or mid-season or early season i was going to say just those two just those two early season or and what state? You didn't even give me a state. I didn't give you, you a state. No. Nope. My gosh. Would you rather hunt a 200-incher or a 170-er? Um, it's a good would you rather. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Would I rather? I I would rather hunt the rut. You'd rather I, hunt the rut? I'd rather hunt the rut. I know they're less likely to be patternable, um, but I just enjoy it. You know, as people have probably gathered now, it's just about, it's more, just as much about the habitat and the time of the year and everything rather than just killing a deer and i would much rather sit in the woods and during the rut with leaves changing all kinds of activity going on than sweating with mosquitoes during the early season so that's just me there you go would you anyway, rather would you rather boy that was quite the podcast i know we're over an hour but i hope everybody uh learned something and is intrigued my challenge for them is to think about planting some diversity this spring and fall uh, mixing it up and seeing what um, you what shows up basically, I'm 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 very hopeful for the response from this podcast. And as people are like, I ne- I hadn't even heard the word monoculture before, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. Or I totally see where you're coming from. Let's think outside the box and let's let's you know move forward with planning diversity and trying to achieve a diverse farm Absolutely. or diverse property. Yeah. So. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, hopefully, um, we did this podcast because we're starting to think about food plots. Um, please share this podcast with your buddies, whoever it is, share it on your Facebook page. Um, please give us a review on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network, um, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you're listening. Please give us a, a review that helps us a lot. And until then, I until guess- next week. We'll see you guys next week. Say ya.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.